Welcome to The Creative Switch, the podcast inspiring the sensibly successful to switch on their unexpressed creativity for a more fulfilled life. And we are back. I've been busy meeting and chatting with some inspirational guests and implementing some of the creative tips I've picked up since starting the podcast earlier this year. In this episode, I chat to the wonderful Kevin Chesters, author of Amazon bestseller, The Creative Nudge, and more than 25 years of experience leading strategy for both creative agencies such as Saatchi and Saatchi and his clients. He shares some unmissable tips on brand building and more. There's also a new segment, Creative Adventures, to listen out for later in the show. Just before we get to that, let me remind you to head to my website, nickyvalance.com, and sign up to join the Creative Switch community and get involved in the creative conversation. First, though, it's time for some creative news in The Edge. Do you know someone who says, oh, I'm not creative. I've never been the creative type. I hear this all the time especially in business groups or networking situations. It's completely understandable if we apply the very narrowest of meanings to the word creative. I recently came across an article in Forbes about thinking. Leadership professor, job market journalist and analyst Ellie Amadour writes about eight new ways of thinking and explains how creative thinking as one of those eight can play a vital role in business and for the very people who don't see themselves as creative. It's something we explore at length in this episode, but what do you think? Take a look at the article and do share your views with me. Don't forget you can find all the links to connect in the show notes. And listen on to learn how creativity can make you happier, healthier and wealthier with Kevin Chester's. Hello, Kev, and welcome to The Creative Switch. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. I would like us to start with you explaining a little bit about who you are and what you do. My name's Kevin. I've been working in the communications industry, advertising, marketing industry for nearly 30 years, mostly in agencies. Uh, I've also worked on the client side. I've you know, worked at some big agencies like Saatchi and Saatchi. Um, I was a chief strategy officer at Ogilvy and a company called Widening Kennedy. And about five years ago, I quit corporate life and I set up my own consultancy with a couple of partners. And then this year, uh, I decided to finally cut the cord and just do me. Uh, so now I work solely with a selection of my own clients. As I always tell them, the only thing I'm now interested in doing is I do interesting things with interesting people. That's my only criteria. Excellent. That sounds fantastic. So you're aware of the audience that we're talking to today, which are people who are interested in either switching on their creativity or understanding how creativity works so that they can be more creative. And I wanted to just ask, what does creativity mean? to you? What does the word mean to you? Not necessarily a pure definition, but just the the thoughts that come to your mind when somebody says that word. It's really simple, by the way. And when you say an official definition, luckily there is one. 
if you go and look in a dictionary, uh, you can look in any dictionary, actually. It doesn't matter which, which version you choose. But to me, all creativity is is the pursuit of the new. That's all it is, right? It's doing things in new, different, interesting ways. If you, It won't mention painting or dancing or drawing or wearing three-quarter length jeans on Mare Street in Hackney. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have any of those things about yeah. creativity. It just says new, different and original. So all creativity is, is a way of looking at the world. But the problem has occurred that it's been given this much narrower definition. You know, even with terminology like the creative industries, as if somehow mm-hmm. other industries aren't allowed to be creative. But <laughs> like you can't be creative in life or teaching or architecture or medicine or because that's not a creative industry and all creativity means is just is there a new or different or better way of doing this whatever this happens to be Mm -hmm. so what does it mean to you that you have that really strong connection with its meaning but how has that played out in in your work in your life How, how do you apply it so Edward de Bono the great philosopher he said creativity makes life more fun and more interesting okay and after the few years we've just had locked up in our back bedrooms or whatever who wouldn't want a more you know interesting life and so what does it mean to me i mean creativity means living a more interesting life i mean there are some people who don't desire to live an interesting life but you don't want to be one of them do you so you it makes your life more fun and more interesting. He also went on to say that it was the key to progress. If you want to go forward, if you want to do something, then then you have to do something new, don't you, if you're going to progress. You can't do what's already there. So so creativity, you know, and it's fundamental. It means being happy because it takes you to new places and different things. And what's tricky about that for humans? genuinely tricky for humans is we're all evolutionary creatures right you know we don't we think less than we think we think so we just do things and your brain gets you to do things without you really noticing and the problem occurs that back in the day and when i say the day i don't mean like last century i mean like fifty thousand years ago or ten thousand years ago anything you did that was new was highly liable to get you killed. So your evolutionary brain, when it sees something new or it feels something new, screams at you to not do it. Yeah. So it's very difficult to overcome these things. And to me, creativity means excitement and it means different and it means new and it means interesting. But probably I almost trained my brain what to not do what is natural for it to do which is to yeah. run away from new things yes yes yeah. whereas what you want it to do is run towards new things yeah because that will be different and interesting and it's important to, to talk about creativity in the same context of lockdown yeah sign-ups to open university creative courses went up over 600 percent during lockdown most people took up a new hobby they did a new thing because they were forced to it didn't stunt creativity. Lockdown hugely amplified it, but actually in quite an interesting way fundamentally, which was we all had to get creative. 
Yeah. In the sense of suddenly an awful lot of mums and dads had to suddenly become primary school teachers or mums and dads who'd been used to sort of abdicating responsibility in a way for creativity in their children to others mm-hmm. had to suddenly make the world a more interesting and different and creative place. And I think that's really interesting. That again, on this narrow definition of creativity, creativity doesn't mean painting or drawing or whatever, right? It just means thinking about things differently. Mm. And what enabled us to overcome our evolutionary blockers was we were suddenly, involuntarily, and incredibly violently shaken out of our status quo. You know, within a week, if you told an IT department in January 2020 yeah. that there was a new strategy in the company and we were going to go 100% digital with all of our meetings by the end of March, they'd have thought yeah. you were mad. Yeah. You know, a digital <laughs> transformation project, it's going to be nine months with all the walls covered in brown paper and post-it notes and McKinsey are coming in. It's going to be this and that. Whereas everybody had to do the world's most violent involuntary digital transformation project in the space of a week. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what happened. Our brains didn't get the option. Yeah. And so we just went, okay, how do we think creatively around this problem? Oh, well, you go in the spare room. I'll have the kids in here. I'll do this. We'll teach them at the table. We'll get the laptops out. We'll get this. Oh, a physics experiment. Oh, don't worry. We'll get the flower out of the cupboard and we'll get the marbles. And, and people just had to do it. Yeah. I just think. I can't imagine what it would be like to not live a creative life. And my job is not, in the narrow definitions of my industry, meant to be a creative job. I'm a strategist. I'm meant to be the one who's sitting here with me sharpened pencil and me specs and having a big (laughs) old think about things and then hand it to a creative person and this again is what is so unhelpfully weird about the way these definitions get used honestly when i was writing the book my co-author mick and i have had nothing but the most amazing support right from from colleagues from clients from people in the industry great feedback wonderful support Only two people, I'm not going to name them, don't worry. Only two people refused to help. And it wasn't through laziness or whatever, right? But one of them I thought was one of the most telling things that's happened to me in my industry for the last 20 years. This person said that they couldn't support the book because us saying that everybody is born inherently creative Everybody has the ability to think creatively, but society and your natural evolution will prevent you from it. So you need help. This person said they couldn't support the book at all because they thought that what would happen would be that clients in my industry would think they could write their own creative work. And that would be a bad thing. Uh, That would be a bad thing, by the way. But it was interesting to me that that person couldn't imagine any definition of the word creative that didn't involve a person in a creative department 
with the job title of creative being creative. Their head could not get their head around it, that you couldn't be a creative farmer or a creative mum, you know, or a creative grandparent. If you're an accountant and someone calls you a creative accountant, um, that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you can be creative in accountancy, but probably best not mention it to the constabulary. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Interesting. So you talked there a little bit about humans and the human tendency, the evolution and how we've got to where we are and the fear of the new because it would have killed us in the past. So that sparks two things that I've learned. And I don't know whether you would agree with me. One of them is that what happens physiologically in the body when you're scared versus when you're excited are actually very, very close together. Yeah, and yeah, yes, and that's why I think you've been able potentially to retrain your brain to overcome that blocker because you seek out that newness for the excitement of it as opposed to the fear of it. Yeah. But also in terms of human evolution, why do you think it is, apart from that genetic inheritance, that some people don't identify as creative? You've mentioned society. Do you think it is something that we've learnt, we've been told, or is there something else going on? There's a couple of things. They are genuine phobias, by the way. Neophobia, fear of the new. Xenophobia, fear of the different. It's come to people think xenophobia is fear of foreigners. It isn't. It's it's from the Greek, fear of the different. So anything new or different, we, we are naturally scared of. And and it's a genuine phobia. You can't just tell people to get over it. Yeah. You know, if, if you were arachnophobic, I couldn't just turn up with a bucket of tarantulas and say, come on, pick one up. It doesn't work that way. You have to go through proper phobia therapy. Think of a spider, draw a spider, get near to a spider, hold a spider. You know, you can't just go straight to point four. So it is a genuine phobia. Society wants you to fit in, right? It's simpler and quicker and cheaper. And there are certain environments where that just makes economic sense or just sense. School. Everyone's got to wear the same uniform, go to the same place at the same time, eat the same yogurt, you know, (laughs) makes sense it's cheaper it's homogeneity you know the army you need everyone to arrive at the same place at the same time otherwise armies don't really work but you know society wants you to fit in because it's easier your brain will tell you to fit in mm-hmm. so back in the days before waitrose the police force and tinder if you wanted to eat you wanted to be safe and you wanted to get laid you have to be mm-hmm. in a tribe. Now, if you did something different or something the tribe didn't want to do, or you were a bit of a difficult sod, you get kicked out of the tribe. Mm-hmm. What happens if you get kicked out of the tribe? You die. <laughs> you die again. So your brain again, everything comes back to threat or reward in human mm-hmm. behavior. It's one of mm-hmm. those two things, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they're going to get rewarded with food or sex or status or happiness, whatever, right? Or uh, I'm going to get hurt socially or physically if i don't do this society will always try and prevent you from being creative because it's different and so what society will tell you is that it's unreasonable yeah um and you won't want to feel like you're unreasonable because you'll get kicked out of the tribe the only problem is that 
you're not being unreasonable. You're just not agreeing with everybody. That's a different thing. And being unreasonable doesn't mean being annoying or contrarian for the sake of it or whatever. That's not what it's about. But you you have to be prepared to be disliked and you have to be prepared to be different because otherwise how are you going to get anywhere new and everybody from Copernicus to Lady Gaga has to do something different because otherwise you're just doing what everyone else does. And Coco Chanel had that wonderful quote, to be irreplaceable, you've always got to be different. So, yeah, I think so. if that has answered the question, I think... Yeah, yeah, it has, yeah. We're born inherently creative. We all are, right? With the ability to do things differently, to think differently and whatever, right? But sociology and biology gets in the way. I call it in the book, The Twin Conspiracy. It's this sort of conspiracy that's conspiring against you to live the happier life. So creativity will make your life more fun and more interesting. But things are conspiring against that happening. So first off, your natural evolutionary programming. Secondly, societal convention that will tell you to fit in. Mm. So you have to break that programming. Mm -hmm. That's the only way you're going to do it. Naturally, it's not going to happen because your makeup is going to tell you not to do it. Yeah, Everything's going to scream at you not to do it. So like anything, you need a bit of help. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got so many things sparking in my brain. Before we talk about the book, and I want to spend a lot of the rest of our time talking about your book, but there's one question I want to ask you, and this is purely for my own benefit. Hopefully other people will benefit from it as well. In the professional space that you're in, I'm not an expert marketeer or at advertising or anything. It's not my profession. But lots of entrepreneurs have to, certainly in the early days of their businesses, wear lots of hats and lots of people have to do that. They have to market, they have to advertise, they have to sell, they have to have some way of getting people to know their brilliant product that they made or their service. If they don't tell people, how are they going to know about it? So there seem to be, from an outsider's point of view, some rules around what you should and shouldn't do to be able to market yourself. My brain says, if I do the same thing that everybody else does then I'm the same as all of them and then I won't stand out so how do you square that circle with being different but also doing it in a way that humans will respond to so it's a great question and there is an answer (laughs) as ever behavioral science can sometimes be a little bit contradictory because it will tell you that you've got to fit in But then it will equally tell you, in order to get noticed, you've got to stand out. So there's a principle called the von Restorff effect, named after the scientist Henry von Restorff who who came up with it, which basically is that the human brain only notices the noticeably different. And it does. So this is the reason that supermarkets change their aisles every six to eight weeks. Not for your benefit or my benefit, for their benefit, because otherwise you shop on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And if they change the aisles you won't you'll be walking around going i wonder where the beans are where are the beans the beans used to be over there and now they're oh look there's two pound off lager and you'll put it in your basket so it's slightly contradictory that is it that you have to do things that humans recognize which is called familiarity bias or is it that you do something that's different von restorff effect the answer as ever is it's somewhere in the middle. And it comes from a principle called optimal distinctiveness. 
it has to be different enough. It has to be familiar, framed familiarly, but then it has to be different enough. And a good example of that is there's a lot of disruptors in the new space. Mm-hmm. You know, digital space people talk about, right? Uber, oh, it's so disruptive. Oh, what a disruptive thing they've done to the industry. Have they? Isn't it just getting a cab? <laughs> it's getting a cab with a bit of a whizzy little interface so you can see where your car is, but it's still just getting a cab. Just eat. So disruptive. Oh, oh, the disruption. <laughs> I mean, you're getting a takeaway, aren't you? I mean, you always got a takeaway. It's just that now it will be from a named takeaway that you know. Oh, and there's an app, right? Yeah. Um, Airbnb. Oh, the disruption. I mean, you're still just renting a room, aren't you? I mean, eBay. Buying secondhand things, isn't it? Just a car boot sale on, on a phone. It's, it's optimally distinct. You have to frame it in the context of something I recognize. Otherwise, it's just weird. And nobody wants to be weird. Because back in the day, what happened, Nikki, if you were weird? You died. <laughs> you died. You're always dying. It's like this kind of mad 80s choose-your-own-adventure book life, isn't it? So, and also, yeah. Whatever happens, you die at some point. But it's basically yeah. how soon is it going to happen to you? Yeah. Um, so, so your brain wants to stop you dying, of course, because that's the game of life. Yeah. It is an interesting aside, by the way. It's why you should never fear getting old. I don't understand anyone who fears getting old because the alternative is really shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the alternative to getting old isn't anything you want to aspire to. Um, <laughs> so, so yes, so that's a very long-winded way of saying, you know, it's very Goldilocks. Can't yeah. be too different. Yeah. yeah. Won't be too same. Your porridge has to be just right. And the posh name for that is optimally distinct. Fantastic. That is really, really helpful. So I want you to tell me about the book that brought us together, A Mutual Contact, one of my previous guests, when we were talking at the end of the the podcast after we'd stopped recording. I was saying that these are the people I want to learn from, the people who know about creativity. And she said, oh, I know someone who's written a book. So talk to me about your book, what it is, why you wrote it, what you learned through writing it. The ironic thing, of course, if, if that was if that was Penilla, uh, which I think it was, yes, she's also was. written an awful lot of books and a lot more books than I have and sold a lot more copies of books than I have. So the book is called The Creative Nudge. It's available from all good bookstores um, and, and one or two bad ones. It was written by myself and a close friend, business partner of mine called Mick Mahoney, who is a creative. So he's been a creative director. He was one of the youngest Cannes Lion Grand Prix winners. He's got won multiple awards in my industry. And he and I collaborated on writing this book. And we both are of the opinion and the strong belief that everybody is born creative and that is true everyone is born with the ability to think differently to think interestingly to problem solve to not go along with the herd because that's what kids are like right as the great sir ken robinson said you know children will have a go right they're not afraid to be wrong and you'll never get anywhere new if you're not afraid to be wrong but of course we know what humans are afraid to be wrong because being wrong in the old days 
got you killed. So um, Mick originally was asked to do a talk on what he believed led to good creativity because he had a job title which said creative. Yeah. And, and he wrote down what he believed were the principles of being creative and then sat down with me and we talked about, well, wh- why doesn't this happen? If this makes you happy, if this makes you healthy, if this makes you wealthy, you know, if we know in our industry, marketing and comms, that creativity is the single biggest driver of advertising profitability, and it's also the thing that's the most likely to get you big business effects is how good your creative work is. Why is there so much stuff out there that's either anodyne, samey, doesn't push any boundaries? It's like, you know, in some ways, the most brave thing you can do in the modern communications landscape is to do things that are the same as everyone else. And when I say brave, by the way, I mean suicidally stupid because uh-huh. uh, no one will notice it and it'll just disappear. So we sat there going, if we know this is right and we know it's what leads to a happy, healthier, wealthier life, why don't people do it? You know, why don't, why, why don't we do it? And that's when we worked out, well, it's got to be evolutionary uh-huh. or it's got to be societal. So we looked into all the science and the reasons why, and then looked into, okay, so because both Mick and I are insane optimists, we were like, come on, humanity can do this, right? We can do, we've got this, okay? There is nothing we can't achieve if we put our collective human brain to it. So we started thinking, what would you need to do? And each chapter is very simple. It outlines what the lesson for creativity is. It then goes into the science, the the sociology and the biology, the nature and the nurture of why as a human you will find this virtually impossible to do. It then tells you the antidote. And then in each chapter, there are four or five nudges, little things you can do in your daily life that will enable you to overcome those things. You don't have to do them all. I mean, there's about six per chapter. So in total, there's over 50 in the book. That would just overload your brain. It wouldn't do it. So we suggest putting one in a week, you know, seeing which ones work best for you, coming up with your own and getting over it. And so there's nine chapters. The first chapter, like all things, is the most obvious, but probably the most useful, which is if you know what you're doing, stop doing it. (laughs) <laughs> because if what you're doing you know it's familiar you've done it before you do it all the time it can't by the dictionary definition of the word be creative mm-hmm. it can't because it won't be new and it won't be different and it won't be original so you've got to work out how to overcome those kind of things and just really simple things you've got to do differently so that's the book it's called the creative nudge it's nine simple steps that to help you think differently because we know, don't we, yeah. that thinking differently will make you happier, healthier, wealthier. You'll have a better life. You'll progress. You'll move forward. You'll be a better mum. You'll be a better husband. You'll be a better person. Creativity is the key to everything. Mm-hmm. The second book we're working on is why it is actually the most pivotal life skill you can ever learn. Because it will enable you to endure the unendurable adapt to the unthinkable and overcome the insurmountable the base you know from locked in syndrome to shipwrecks it's become the greatest trigger to creativity 
mm-hmm. is adversity, mm-hmm. hence COVID. Yeah. And so that's the book. And interestingly, you know, in, in half the countries where the book is launched, it didn't launch in marketing or advertising or business. It's actually been positioned as a self-help book because that's what it is. And you ask me, how did it come about? I didn't write this for the industry or for business. I wrote this for my mum, who told me all my life, oh, I've got a book in me. I've always been very creative. I always want to write. I always do whatever. And had that crushed out of her as a girl. I was told to go and get a job, get a proper job, put away all the silly stuff. Why are you writing all those silly stories? Don't do that. And never got round to writing it and died without it being written. Mm-hmm. You know, and you go, there's too much of that going on. People crushing that belief out of people, particularly children, that you can't be creative as an adult because that's kind of what you do when you're a kid. Mm-hmm. And it's so mad to me that because we know, don't we, that creative thinking is the key to success. So why would yeah. you crush that skill out of anybody? Yeah. <laughs> it's mad, yeah. mad. I think I think we're at a crux. You're right, and and I'm very curious to see the second book, in that because of where we're at in terms of the fourth industrial revolution with AI and lots of my guests have talked about this, the question of what is human creativity versus what is general creativity, which includes things that are created through AI, um, is really fascinating to me. And I'm an optimist as well. I genuinely believe that it is that skill, that fundamental skill that is unique to us, that will be it's the most important thing for our survival as a well, the planet as well, but uh, as a species. Nobody I've spoken to yet has been able to convince me otherwise. So I'm I'm open to being convinced that AI will have that impact, but I just don't believe it will because, and I, it may be because I don't understand it well enough. But to me, and from the, through the other conversations I've had with other people, the novelness, which is that creativity, the newness, is to do with neural pathways connecting that are unexpected connections so it's can't be predicted in humans because it's that unexpected connection all our brains are different we all see things differently we all have different experiences we would solve things in a different way and parts of our brain that shouldn't necessarily connect connect to get us to that point where we found that novel solution so i don't know that's what i believe I mean, do do you believe that an AI could ever sit in a room and write Monty Python's Flying Circus? No, it couldn't. No. What I think it could do is imitate the style of something. I did an experiment with AI the other day. So a few years ago, I was involved for 3.co.uk in an ad campaign. I did the strategy for it, and we developed an ad that was a dancing moonwalking horse. I don't know if you remember it. It was a moonwalking horse to a Fleetwood Mac soundtrack. There wasn't a phone, a person, anything in the ad at any point. There were only four words in the ad, in fact, which said at the end, silly stuff, it matters, and then a three logo, right? 
I wanted to chat GPT the other day and I wrote the brief for three for Pony in chat GPT. And um, I said, write me a funny television advert for 3.co.uk to introduce the fact that 3 has the only all-you-can-eat internet, mobile internet tariff available in the UK. Because that was the brief. And it wrote me a perfectly functional ad about a bunch of people in a house. Mum, oh, I can't get this to Oh, Kids, oh, yeah, you can have unlimited whatevers. And it was perfectly functional, and it would have been fine. And do you know what? You could have run it. Great. Was it a moonwalking horse to Fleetwood Mac? No. Could it ever have been? No. And so I I think one of the things with AI is, so I'm old. (laughs) So I've been through a few hype cycles. Mm -hmm. So I remember when the World Wide Web started in the UK Mm -hmm. properly, you know, 95, 96, people really starting talking about it. Yeah. Then I remember things like search engines. Then I went through mobile data. Then I went through WAP. What a palaver, as it was known. Then you go through the rise of social. Then you get into things like video social, like TikTok, et cetera, et cetera. Then you start getting into things like Clubhouse, Web3, the metaverse, if you remember that. And then you get into AI, right? And there's only two narratives that occur in technology that I've noticed over 30 years. Narrative one is it's the death of everything. Narrative two is it's the future of everything. (laughs) it's either everything's gonna die and nothing's ever gonna be the same again because of this which is going to change absolutely everything for the sake of everything forevermore right yeah the people pushing both those narratives normally have a hugely vested interest in you buying whatever it is that's the new thing okay i'm not saying it won't have an impact everything always has an impact but there's a number of really interesting books uh, which I, i i quite like on this topic one is tom standage's book the victorian internet which basically takes all the language that was used around the launch of the telegraph in the mid-19th century and applies it to the emergence of the World Wide Web in the 90s. It's exactly the same language. It's a web of ideas. It's a total connection. You know, all that stuff. The second book is Children of Chaos, which Doug Rushkoff wrote in 97 about what the internet was going to do to the world. And most of it came true. It's really good. It's a superb book. But it largely sort of shows you that everyone says... This is going to change everything forever and a day. I think when new technology shows up, it's a little bit like an uninvited, unexpected guest turning up at your dinner party. What happens is it's all a little bit orcs at the start. No one knows where they fit in, who knows them, where it's going to sit about. Oh, my God, is this going to mess everything up we've been doing? The hubbub's changed. The conversation gets interrupted. Everyone gets a little bit discombobulated. Then someone comes along and goes, right, we'll get them a plate. Right, I'll have a bit of this and you have a bit of that and you have some of mine and you do this and shuffle up a bit and do whatever. Then everything settles down a bit and then the hubbub happens. It's changed the dynamic. It wasn't the same as it was before. Things have changed by them turning up. Some people have lost a bit off their plate. Some people have lost a bit more off their plate. Some people have lost nothing off their plate. (laughs) But it just kind of gets on with it. And I've watched it too many times in the hype cycle now to panic it's going to be the death of everything or remortgage my house and chuck all the money on it going to be the future of everything too i Mm -hmm. found ai incredibly useful for my creativity you know in terms of a research tool in terms of it being able to 
condense huge amounts of scientific papers into various things. Uh, and but one of the most intelligent things, probably the only intelligent thing I've done in the last year, is I've got my son, my 20-year-old son, to essentially do me a series of tutorials on AI. Because it's not my world, right? It's not my world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's his world. And that generation has had to adapt to so much change so quick in the tech space that they just now assimilate it. Mm -hmm. I mean, humans do, by the way. Again, it's another yeah. principle. If you want another posh word for it, it's called hedonic adaptation. What humans do is we automatically assimilate everything new and different and good as normal. And we only notice the bad part of it. Because, again, from an evolutionary perspective, what happened? It's why... You know, over two-thirds of editorial written about technology is written from a negative standpoint, not a positive standpoint. And that's why you're used to hearing about new technologies being bad for you because yeah. that's what humans like to do because if it bleeds, it leads. Mm. So this, this is what happens, that we're sort of imagining this is all going to be really, really terrible, mm. and it sort of isn't. It's kind of yeah. – it kind of just – it's okay. And actually, if you look at AI through a certain lens, I found it hugely time-saving. I think what AI will ultimately do is to create more time for human creativity. Where that's difficult, though, and it is problematic from a society, is humans, and a lot of humans used to do a lot of that legwork. Mm. So if I think of junior strategists or junior consultants at places like McKinsey, they used to spend a week writing a report on you know, a sector, the automotive sector. They'd write a report on the 10 trends in the automotive sector, you know, the top seller. They'd be doing that as a junior. And ultimately, they'd progress through to become more senior. But now all you do is just type into chat GPT, write me a 10-slide PowerPoint deck on this, and it will come back in a minute. Now, it won't be 100% accurate. You might want to test it, whatever. But a lot of that legwork, I now get done via various AI tools rather than potentially getting a junior in to do it for me. Uh, and that is problematic. For, for the upper echelons of university educated, in the creative industries, etc. it will help to do a lot of that legwork. The question mm. is... What will it replace? Now, in some ways, it will replace some vastly needed things. So a little robot to go around putting all the taking all the pills around to everybody in hospital is really useful because it frees up brilliant nurses and doctors to go and do pastoral things and go and do more of the stuff that isn't that grunty legwork. So as long as we are, and this is a big if, as long as humans are decent, honest, and fair about it all, then it should be okay. But what I wouldn't do is overhype it. Um, no. You know, I think it will help in our creativity. But I'd, so I just think we need to – don't believe the hype. Don't make it a binary choice. It's not all this or all that, and it's yeah. certainly not the death of this and the future is. So – I, I think I pretty much agree with you, and I, I want to know more. I don't want to run away from it. I think a lot of people are 
doing that and they're scared by the one extreme and uh trying to ignore it all and i think that's not very helpful or useful i've got one more question before we finish at any point in your life who has suggested that you don't use your creativity and that you perhaps take a more sensible path have you got a doubting doris story um i mean i think for most people if they're honest, the doubting Doris is themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's quite often that narrative telling you, don't do it, don't take the risk, take the safe option. It's, it, I genuinely think for most people, it's that irritating little voice in their head that basically tells them not to do the thing that will probably make them happier. I mean, six months ago, I was doubting, I was going, well, I'm about to get to 50 and I realized I love my work I really love my work what I do with clients I solve problems for clients I do a lot of training and learning on the book and on various other things and I do university lecturing on the science of storytelling and I help companies with how they can create their own story and I came to realize that I really love my work but I really didn't like my job and so why don't I just do the work which would be me not running a company, not having employees, not trying to worry about growth, you know, all these kind of things. Just do you. But this voice in your head says, oh, hang on a minute. What about all the people? You know, you've had support and you're going to be on your own. And oh, and oh, ironically, the voice in my head, my doubting Doris is my grandmother, which is really ironic because she was my single biggest supporter. You know, it's like with your grandma, whatever you do is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but she grew up in an era, she was illegitimate. She lost both her parents by the time she was 12. She had to go into domestic service, like proper Downton stuff, living below stairs, doing the fires at 4am, living off scraps from the master's table, whatever, you know, all this, right? Class, I mean, you don't think this existed, but this was like less than a century ago. She was always so terrified of don't risk things don't you know and obviously very understandable from from her childhood had everything ripped away from her but this sort of infected the family narrative infected my mum with it who clearly was very creative wanted to do a levels really wanted to go to university but didn't because she was told get yourself a job you know you need money you don't want to be messing around with book learning. You total waste of time. So, you know, she went off and she became a nurse when she was 18, which is why I love nurses more than anything. You know, the best people in the world, right? But, you know, she worked in the NHS when she was 18 to the day she retired because she was told to do that. So she wasn't creative. It wasn't that thing. Don't try anything because what would happen if you fail? Mm. Don't take the risk because what would happen if you had nothing to fall back on? And in a way, that doubting doris from my gran Mm. is what turned my mother into my greatest inspiration because she always told me to try things that i could do anything i wanted to do if you go onto youtube and look up a tedx talk that i did called avoiding single acts of carelessness it's basically around how we need to encourage weirdness in kids because weird is just another word for creative. It's different. It's not weird. It's just not what everyone else does. That's just different. That's creative. And my mum, they, they thought I was a bit weird at school. 
I mean, I'm, I'm autistic, right? So, I mean, medical autistic. So, you know, I am a bit weird. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I quite like it, to be honest with you. Uh, I think Sigourney Weaver said it, didn't she, in her high school yearbook. It's one of those wonderful lines. She said, please, God, don't let me be normal. <laughs> you know? They brought her to the school when I was a kid and said they thought that I was really quite mentally unstable and I couldn't tell the difference between fantasy and reality and said they thought that I had a problem with my imagination. And my mum told them, I didn't find out about this for years, by the way. She told me this when I was in my teens. This happened when I was about seven years old. Uh, my mum told me, if she ever heard them use the words problem and imagination in the same sentence again, she was going to pull me out of school. And I think that's the thing. You can have, you can let the doubting Doris, whether it's your own little voice or it's somebody who told you something, you can let it overwhelm you. Or you can realize one of the best bits of advice I was ever given about that voice or that doubt or that fear was from an, a therapist years ago I was talking to who gave me a little tip. Here's one for all the listeners out there. It was called, would it stand up in court? And that's what you do. When that voice comes in your head and says, you're not good enough to do this. You go, okay. Would that stand up in court? If you had to go in front of a judge and present the case for why you couldn't do this, could you do it? Could you go, come on, here's the wealth of evidence. Or would you look across from you at the case for the defence who would go, well, you're on, I'll put it. And you'd come to realise that all you've got is conjecture and fear. What you look at mm -hmm. on the other side is you've done this before. You've ed you're educated. You've, you, you've worked it out. You've got the experience. You know what you're doing. You've got all the stuff. You've got a mountain of evidence. All the other side has got, all the prosecution has got, is your natural human fear of the new and the different. It's just like having circumstantial evidence. And any judge in the world would take a look at your case and go, mate, you're wasting my time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> All you've got is this stupid little fiery voice in your head. Whereas if you actually look at the evidence for whether you can do this, it's a mountain of evidence and it's proper evidence. Years of experience. You've done it before. You've got all this stuff telling you. The only thing that's stopping you, and I know it's a cliche, but the great thing with cliches is that most of them are based in truth. That's why they exist and why they persist. It's the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. And there's a wonderful book, and I was trying to, it's called Scream. It, and I mention it in the book. And it's, it's called um, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear. And it's by a lady called Margie Kerr. And it's basically the science of scariness like why we like roller coasters, why we love jump scares. And basically, it's the science of fear and why fear is so like annoyingly limiting for humans and how to overcome it. It's honestly one of the most fascinating books I ever read, um, particularly to explain jump scares, by the way. And it's why, by the way, you know you said earlier about shocks and surprises act the yeah. same way on the brain. That's why you laugh after you've had a jump scare, because it, you're scared and then it's funny and your brain's sort of going, is this a shock or is it a surprise? And to your brain, it's the same thing. It's, so doubting Doris's, in 99% of cases, you're your doubting Doris. Yes. And it's not stand up in court. 
So just get on with it. Brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Well, great tip to end on. I want people to know where to find you, where they can connect with you if they want to. You mentioned the book already, but tell everybody how they could do that. Yeah, I'm not a difficult man to find. So you'll find me on LinkedIn. My name's Kevin Chesters. If you want to have a look at my speaker website, it's kevinchesters.com. That's not complicated, is it? And so there are two places you can find me. And so, yeah, I, I'm not difficult to find. And you know, in my day job, most of what I do is I do learning and training for companies of all kinds on how you can be more innovative and creative in what you do. And I've done them for companies as disparate as Google, Lego, Marks and Spencer, the BBC, British Telecom, John Lewis. And as I say, I do it at universities as well, the science of storytelling. There's lots of different things I do in this sphere. But really, all I want to do is encourage people in every context to be more creative. And the reason is you'll often hear, weirdly and distressingly, you'll hear a lot of business people say, oh, well, I'm not very creative. I'm not the creative one. I'm not very creative. Now, do you think those same people would stand in front of their board or their shareholders or a journalist and say, I don't believe in being original. I don't think we should be different. I don't think we should be distinct in any way. I'm not original. I'm not different. How can they sit there and say, I'm not creative? And the reason is just because of the ridiculous nature of what that word has come to mean, which is why, like with all words that have been misused, it's beholden on the good people in society to go and take that word back and apply it for good not for bad and that's what the word creative is anyone can creatively switch anybody can be creative right because you already are yeah excellent thank you so much kevin it's been brilliant talking to you i've learned so much we'll have to stay in touch thank you very much i've learned so much from kevin there i've bought my copy of the creative nudge and i'm looking forward to diving in I'll let you know how I get on. Let me just remind you to head to nickyvalance.com to join the Creative Switch community to connect and possibly collaborate with other fabulous creatives. Now, here's that new segment I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. I've called it Creative Adventures, and it is inspired by my year of creativity. During the break between seasons, I reflected on all the lessons, tips, and knowledge I had picked up from speaking to my guests. Long-term listeners of the podcast will have heard me talking about 2023 being my year of creativity, where I've been exploring lots of different ways to connect with different forms of creative expression and working on planned creative projects. It might be easy for you to think I've got this whole creativity thing sussed out. That is not the case. I'm just the same as everybody else. And so rather than just accumulate all this inspiration from my guests, I'm going to share the practical challenges I encounter and how acting on the things I've learnt through the conversations and applying those learnings are helping me to move forward in my own creative adventures. The first of these is from Penilla Hughes in episode one. She says about feeling stuck, 
you have a responsibility to your own self and brain to keep it stimulated in a way that can bring you some contentment. Hands up, I was feeling stuck with my latest writing project. Listening to Penilla, who is an author and has had some successes with her novels previously, made me think about why I might be stuck. I definitely wasn't feeling contented with it. On reflection, my stuckness wasn't about the writing at all. It was about making sure I gave my time to other creative projects and recognising, like Penilla, that I couldn't do everything all at once. Putting energy into something important to you isn't a problem. It's a choice. That said, taking on too many projects is not always wise. And so I have also learnt I need to slow down, trust in the decisions I make and not overcommit myself. So 2024 will be a continuation of my creative adventures. The podcast and book two are in there, as are a few others that I didn't get to this year. No extra projects are being added. Less pressure equals more contentment. I'd like to give a shout out to Alitu, my podcast production software, and Captivate, which I use for my podcast hosting. If you're interested in setting up a podcast, I would highly recommend both, especially if you're on a limited budget and will be doing all the work, like me, yourself. I've included my affiliate links for their services in the show notes. And don't forget to share your own creative challenges and adventures in the Creative Switch community. Maybe somebody else will be able to help you overcome the challenges and move forward in your adventures. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Creative Switch. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review over on Podchaser. And join me next time for an extra special episode full of magical seasonal cheer with author, illustrator and animator Lorna Gibson.